even totally now. Come what may seeing, come what may doing. Sounds catchy, doesn't it? (laughs) Few people told me that. Now let's find out if there's anything in back of it. We have to, we commit ourselves to talk sometimes six months or even almost a year ahead in what seems in the moment, it's very exciting, something we'd really like to go into, is not necessarily uh, what remains about seven or eight months later. So I barely understand what the words mean, but it sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. Come what may, uh, interests me because it's just what it sounds like. Are we able to pay attention to whatever turns up? By that I mean whatever, come what may, no matter what it is. And so since that's the heart of the practice, that's the first part. The second part, come what may doing, can we do what needs to be done? no matter what that is. And of course, the seeing is very much a part of the doing, and so they're quite related. Altogether, it's a total practice. It's a practice that has the contemplative aspect where we have so little to do, we have nothing to do really but to see, just to sit and to pay attention. But then once we get off the cushion, not only do we need to pay attention, but we have to do things. We have to talk and act and so forth. Um, And so what I wanted to do tonight is to sketch out a few um, aspects of this very basic attitude in our practice and hope that uh, some of it resonates with you in terms of your own practice and that we can get a chance to talk it over. Why would it be interesting to emphasize that it's important to pay attention to whatever turns up simply because it is there? Because that's that's what's being said. That is, we pay attention to something simply because it's there. I think it's interesting because that isn't what we usually do. We have all kinds of reasons for paying attention to certain things and avoiding other things. Uh, very often not paying attention at all or paying attention in very specialized ways. Uh, For me, this practice is very much akin uh, the observational aspect to the kind of attention that naturalists have, amateur or otherwise. If any of you have ever watched birds 
or watched the tides or watched animals, even if it's only in the zoo, or watched the clouds, just watched with that openness to nature, especially if you love nature. And what you're seeing is the unfolding of some natural phenomenon. And if you've read any of the um, field studies of naturalists, many of them obviously love what they do. Sometimes they love it so much they go native and become like the gorillas or like rhesus monkeys or whatever. But there's a kind of joy in the looking, in the seeing, in, in the attempt to understand a full round of life. If you watch birds, perhaps at Plum Island or someplace like that, uh, even for five minutes, you have some sense of the attitude that is going to be suggested tonight. Now, when we watch as naturalists, we're watching nature unfold. And in watching nature unfold, it can be quite interesting if you have that starting point. In the modern world, perhaps, that's less and less so as we become more and more denatured. How does that carry over when we begin to look at our own mind and our own body? Uh, In a certain way, there's no difference whatsoever. Now, typically, when we begin to pay attention to the mind, we very much look at it from the point of view of the existence of problems, our own, problems that need solving. And once you begin to see things that way, there's always an I and a mine in it. I have a problem. It's my problem. What can I do about it? How can I get rid of it? That's a somewhat different perspective than seeing even the most intimate productions of your mind as part of nature. In the Buddhist scheme of things, everything is nature. One meaning of dharma or dhamma is the way things are. It's a natural order. It's a lawfulness kind of intelligence that seems to inform what's happening. It's not, things aren't random. There's some sense to things. Whether you attribute it to a god or to some very mysterious built-in intelligence. There's a natural order. And when we watch the breath or we watch the body, uh, the frame of reference of Dharma is exactly that. It's to be able to see things, to develop the respect for the way things are. But the way things are include us. We're as much a part of nature as anything that's outside of us, which we tend to think of as being nature. And so, from that point of view, what we see are particular natural phenomenon that come through consciousness, that arise and pass away, that don't really belong to anyone, or if they do belong to anyone, they belong to nature. And there's no I and mine in that. There's just what's there. And this is, of course, one of the fruit, the fruits of the, of the practice, when we begin to not only relax, but also to develop a very steady ability to pay attention. And when that is joined with this sense of change, when that steadiness of attention is able to observe and notice everything arising and passing away, no matter where our attention is placed, we see that. And we see the flow of phenomena 
arising and passing away. It's a very, very different perspective than one where we are totally problem-oriented, where we're preoccupied with a personal problem which must be solved. To some degree, that is the problem. That's what keeps it from being fully a Dharma practice. But of course, the practice starts with where we are, and where we are is we take everything very personally. You could say that finally, in even a small taste of enlightenment, what has begun is the process of handing everything back to nature. Not as an ideology, but as a heartfelt truth. You begin to understand that there isn't anything in this world that you own. Least of all yourself. I don't know if it's least of all or most of all. It's all just one process and there's nothing outside of it. Now, in order to be able to do that, obviously you have had to have traveled somewhat and have tripped over a perspective that doesn't see things as natural, but rather sees everything in a, in a way that's preoccupied and personal and a bit desperate. Okay, come what may seeing is this capacity that we're developing, those of you who are really new, um, we begin with the breath. Well, many of us, were, perhaps everyone in this room has had some fam- familiarity with that approach. And even there, there are different breaths, different kinds of breaths. Some are, are easier to attend to than others. But especially when the vipassana part of the practice unfolds, not so much samadhi, although it's a, it has a different application in samadhi. Samadhi is when we are being with one object, developing it, our attention on one object. But the heart of vipassana uh, has nothing to do with any particular object. It has to do with seeing the lawfulness in whatever is there. And at the beginning, we have very strong likes and dislikes and aversions and preferences. I don't want to really attend to that because it's too boring. I don't want to attend to that because it's too frightening. I do want to attend to that because it makes me feel good. That's too ordinary. I don't see why I should be interested in that. Just these kind of ordinary uh, chatter floating through the mind. And then suddenly there'll be very fine sensations that come about as the mind settles down. Oh, I like this. These fine sensations are just great. I really like experiencing this. And then suddenly it becomes gross and crude again because we've had a nasty thought and the mind has changed and the breath has changed and the whole level of concentration has changed. And how do I get away from this? I don't really want to see this and experience this. I want to get back to those nice fine sensations where there's nice, that nice hum in the mind. Mm. I think there are all kinds of scientific terms for it, alpha state and beta state. Get me some of that alpha. And what we're learning, uh, all of us, at whatever stage of the practice, there's one notion, one uh, function, one... It's the heart of the practice called sati, S-A-T-I. And sati is sometimes translated, mostly translated as mindfulness. 
Sometimes it's called awareness or attention. And what we're learning is how to develop that quality over and over and over and over again. And so no matter what you're doing, if your attention's in the bottoms of your feet, if you're just beginning to learn the walking meditation, have faith, it goes beyond the bottoms of your feet eventually, those you are really new. Or whether you're attending to some very deep fear or something in between, in all cases you're attending. And so uh, all the many techniques, all the different, the many ways in which the practice is emphasized, there's no way to escape mindfulness or attention. That's the one thing that we're doing over and over and over and over again. Now this attention itself has certain nuances. Sometimes we add other names to it to account for those nuances. We might call it sati panya. It still has mindfulness in it. Panya is a kind of discernment where the mindfulness contemplates something enabling wisdom to develop from that which is contemplated. But if there's no mindfulness, the wisdom can only come from memory, from intellect, from ideas. And that isn't powerful enough to transform us. So step number one, something has to be contemplated mindfully. And if that can happen, then wisdom can grow out of it. If it doesn't happen, what we call wisdom is just wise words, but it's not true wisdom. And so what we're learning as we move through this, sometimes you may see it and other times not, is we're learning how to develop the ability to pay attention come what may. And it's very uneven. Now, one of the reasons we practice together a lot, certainly at the beginning, which can be years, is that we all have our preferences. I I like to practice now, but uh, 20 minutes from now, I'm not in the mood. Or there may be a lot of stuff coming through the mind that you don't want to really look at. But here we are. We kind of all hold each other here. Typically on a retreat, when you have a group of people practicing together for times varying from one day to months, one of the valuable aspects of having other people with us is that they help us to look at that which we really don't want to look at. I mean, if come what may, looking were natural, none of us would need to be here tonight. It isn't. Rather, what we've come up with is a way of having very strong aversions and preferences. And so, after a while, you could say that after a certain number of years, who we are has to do with a certain pattern of inattention. There's a kind of a a patterning to what we will pay attention to and what we won't. And perhaps a lot of what we won't pay attention to is anything that makes us anxious. If something makes us anxious, we simply turn away from it. Let me um, mention a few aspects of this mindfulness or sati. Um, I think in doing that, these are sort of... uh, They're kind of similar, each one, but each one is slightly different. And they all come upon this, in a way, a very simple notion. Very hard to put into words, though. I know in teaching beginning classes, when people say, well, what is mindfulness? You keep talking about mindfulness. Uh, It's not always easy to answer that, even though that's what we're doing all the time. But anyway, I'll try to put some, at least some aspects of it into words. 
One aspect of sati or mindfulness is that when it's happening, it's pre-conceptual, it's non-conceptual. It has nothing to do with thinking. And typically what might happen is your mindfulness, your attention would land on an object and at the beginning, it's not for very long. It might be just a few seconds and there's a rush of something in us labels it, gives it a nice little neat name tag and then something else follows almost immediately and makes up a story about it. Or as the mind works that way. The raw experience, that basic contact with life, unnamed life, non-conceptual, not symbolic, just what it is, that at first doesn't live very long in our practice. We get glimpses of it here and there. Much of our life is a conceptual life. Many of the problems of the body have to do with the fact that we don't experience the body fully. Something comes up in the body and we superimpose almost immediately. It's not that we're doing it intentionally. Ideas about it, allowing certain things and not others and naming it and doing something to it. We treat it. We make it into something. But we don't experience the body in just its simple way very often. And that, of course, goes for feelings and thoughts and all the rest of us. So the practice is an attempt to get back to an utter simplicity. Can those moments when there's a tension, which is preconceptual, can they be prolonged? Can they last a little longer before the rush of thought comes in and begins to tell you what you're seeing? Tell you what you're feeling? Tell you what you're listening to? Can we learn to tell the difference? More and more as we learn to tell the difference, it becomes more and more possible to just be with what's there and see things as they are. So one aspect of mindfulness is that. It's preconceptual. It's also uh, like a mirror. Mindfulness is like a mirror. The analogy can break down, but it has some, a certain likeness to a mirror. A mirror, let's say this is a mirror as I hold up my right hand and if I put my left hand in front of it, it simply shows what's there. In this case, an open palm. Now, if I remove my hand, the mirror now no longer shows that open palm. If I then put a fist in front of it, it shows a fist. Whatever is seen is a reflection. And when mindfulness is simply mindfulness, when sati is just what it is, that's what it does. Its power is in its being nothing. Its power is in just being what it is and not adding or subtracting anything. It just shows you what's there. And part of what we have to learn is how to value that. At first, we don't really value that very much. Other aspects of uh, this mindfulness or attention, and again, they're all slightly different ways of saying the same thing. Is that mindfulness is non-judgmental. It's unbiased. Now, remember, this is mindfulness that we're developing in this practice. If you don't do anything, you'll still have some mindfulness. To be human is to have awareness. We all know to some degree what's happening to us. 
But the practice of mindfulness is to take that out of that kind of casual approach and to deepen it so that there is available to us this mirror-like reflection for longer and longer periods of time. And more and more, this capacity to see is unbiased. We develop this ability to be, and now we really get at the heart of come what may seeing. It means there are no preferences. Whatever is there is experienced simply because it is there. Now, this is a a hard one for well-educated people to get, in my opinion. I also have an education, so I have opinions. So maybe what I'm about to say is not, I'm already forgetting it. When I say we watch something or we pay attention to something simply because it's there, I'm repeating it because try to hear it, hear the extraordinary importance of it. I heard you. you. We pay attention to something because it's there. Okay, move on. What's next? But in saying that, what that is saying also is that we don't need any other reason to justify paying attention to something. We don't need Jung's theory or Freud's theory or Marx's theory or Buddha's theory or anyone's theory. There needs to be no set of reasons or set of truths or theories to justify paying attention to something. We pay attention to something simply because it's there. It's that simple. If we could only remember that. The problem is we don't always like what's there. Now, the unbiased, non-judgmental aspect of mindfulness comes in in that can we be willing to pay attention to whatever turns up? Now, remember, once you start to practice, especially you fold your legs or sit in a chair, however you do it, close your eyes. Those of you who are new, you should know what you're getting into, it's an invitation for the mind to start spewing forth. Remember, that's you're asking for it. If you don't want to know a lot of the things that are going on, don't sit down and fold your legs and close your eyes. Keep busy all the time. (laughs) Fill up that day, get absorbed, go here, go there, be on the phone half the day, get in and out of cars, whatever it takes buy new things for the house all the time, new outfits, books, whatever. Fill that mind up. But when you sit down and there's nothing else to do, the practice is really the art of learning how to do nothing. You just sit there and it's an invitation. What do you think is going to come up? Whatever's there. And so, if you're doing that to yourself, if you're inviting the mind to empty itself, and you're giving it this polite invitation, calling it Buddhist meditation, then it seems obvious that the other thing we have to learn is how to be very cordial and how to be a good host, a hostess, to whatever turns up. And here's where the problem comes in. We have no control over what's going to turn up, or very little. The mind is ungovernable. And when you sit, whether at home or at a retreat, or really it's going on all day long anyway, but now we're taking advantage of that. The mind has a mind of its own. Have you seen that? And it's just going to throw up what it wants to throw up. And the quality of your sitting is going to be what it is. And part of the teachings of the, uh, of, of the Dharma is the impermanence of everything. And impermanence, of course, expresses the uncertainty of things. Because everything's changing, we can't be certain about anything. 
And so let's say you come to sit and you have a, what is called a good sitting. In a good sitting, you get what you want. You get what you paid your membership dues for or why you walked, came here, took an hour to drive here or something. There's, it's gentle and sweet and nice and perhaps some nice thoughts come up and some loving feelings and you're really happy to be here. And then the next sitting, you scurry back to your cushion expecting at least the same, but now it's one sitting more, so it should be even more intense. (laughs) And instead, what is it? The Adolf Hitler inside of all of us comes out and we're restless and impatient and angry and vindictive, hate meditation, hate this place. And of course, we try to get away from that. Now, the unbiased aspect of mindfulness has to do with can we observe hating to be here as well as loving to be here? Can you see what a giant step that is? You know, when you're uh, leading retreats and interviews, especially at the beginning, which can be years, so many of the questions really boil down to, I'm not getting what I want out of meditation. How can I get that? And what teachers are always saying, or trying to, to learn how to say it so it doesn't become so boring that we all just fall asleep on ourselves, is whatever's there is fine. That's what's there. Can you learn how to be with what's there? That's just as valuable as having a calm mind or whatever qualities, a gentle mind or a loving heart in the, in the midst of the practice. Can you see that grasping after a calm mind and running away from an irritated one is the same kind of desperation that brought us here? That it could be just as well anything else? That somehow what is there is not enough or too much. And so we want something else. And the process of running after that and pushing away what we have, even if it's a subtle meditation state that we want, it's really the same thing and we suffer. The practice has to do with developing respect for nature. It has to do with self-respect, too, because because we're aspects of nature, of course. Put into the terms that have to do with with what we do here, it's, I think the word infinite is not excessive here. We have to develop an infinite respect for the way things are. And so each one of us begins the practice at any moment that you're practicing exactly the way you are. I mean, all we can bring to the practice is exactly what we have. Not more or less. Can you be someone else or something else? And a large part of the practice is getting comfortable with the fact that each one of us must be who we are. And who that is changes from moment to moment. And so that if we have, in quotes, a good sitting and then in quotes, a bad sitting, if we can begin to relax and see that this is the way things are. This is the way it feels when the mind is full of irritability and impatience. This is how a human being, namely this human being, feels when the mind is this way. And then, of course, it passes. It's not self. It's just part of nature, like a cloud formation. It passes. And then suddenly we're happy. Oh, I'm now happy and calm and peaceful. This is the way it feels when the mind is full of happiness and peace and calm. Now, that state, of course, we like. Interestingly, 
we also lose our ability to pay attention here. Remember, the, the prerequisite of the practice is to pay attention. Now, we don't like negative states, so we try to push them away, strike out at them, avoid them, get absorbed in something else. We do like nice states, soft, peaceful, gentle states. And here we get lost in them. In both of these are general tendencies. In both cases, we're not really paying attention in the sense in which the practice, in which sati is used. And so one of the things to learn is, can we see that irritated mind, see it as just what it is, watch it arise, watch it pass away, and see that it lacks selfhood. It belongs to no one. It's not I or mine. That's wisdom. In that moment, some wisdom has been developed. As you allow that to happen, as you allow nature to unfold in the only way it can, and in the next moment when there's happiness or peace, can there be attentiveness to that? Now, the truth is, the ability to do that takes us beyond that polarity of I like and I don't like, which is quite familiar to us. And so this unbiased quality is central to developing a mind, come what may mind. Now, one way to develop it is not, uh, the main way for most of us is not to to suddenly pass a law internally and say, you're right, I'm just going to pay attention to everything no matter what comes up. It's a nice New Year's resolution. But what tends to happen is that some of these states are so highly charged and powerful, like fear, that when it comes up, we find that we really can't pay attention to it. And you can begin to see the mind get on roller skates and get away from the fear as fast as it can. So what would come what may mind, come what may seeing, what would that be about in this case? Is it saying, you better get back to that fear? I suppose it's one way to say it, but it isn't really. What it's saying is, can you see how much you're afraid to look at fear? Because come what may has suddenly changed. First you had fear in the mind, but then that was followed with a tremendous momentum to get away from it, either by explaining it intellectually or changing the subject or suddenly deciding to get up from your cushion and have a cup of tea or whatever. But that's what's in the moment. Come what may is now a mind that does not want to feel afraid. I don't want to feel afraid. I hate that feeling. I don't care. I just can't bear feeling afraid. And here it's coming. So that the practice is being with the way things are. And the way things are is we hate fear. Okay. So first there's fear, then there's seeing how much we want to get away from fear, seeing the elaborate and ingenious networks of escape that we have, and in seeing those networks, it's as much a part of the practice as the fear itself. And so in the process of learning how to be with what is happening right now, this quality of pure attention develops. Now again, now we come to another aspect of sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness only happens in the present tense. That's the only time it ever happens. If you're concerned about the last 2,000 years of mindfulness, the only one that matters is the one... Mindfulness only happens now. 
that's what it is. Anything else is maybe useful or interesting, but it's not mindfulness. Mindfulness forever is now. And so it can be picked up in any given moment. And so that's why the practice is being an endless beginner. We keep falling out of the moment, avoiding, having biases, not wanting to pay attention to certain things. And then mindfulness itself, and this is part of the beauty of it, one of the jobs of mindfulness is to help us see what we've set about doing. It sets things right. And so that let's say you're attempting to be mindful of the present moment. Mindfulness can see that you're not. Or is it the awareness of unawareness is a very high level of awareness. Noticing that you're not noticing is really noticing. Do you see what I'm getting at? And so the, the practice gets to be quite exquisite. It's not that you have to be perfect. You have to just be with what's there. We're relieving, each one of us is relieved of this excruciating burden of being perfect. Of course, you could turn this one into another crucible. Oh, I can't allow things to be just the way they are. Everyone else in the room seems to be able to allow things to be just the way they are. But I can't. Well, watch that one now. So it's ruthless. Vipassana is very, very gentle, as many of you know. And our language is pretty soft and humanitarian, and it's ruthless. If you really hear the teaching, there's no way out. There are no loopholes. It's saying, pay attention to what's happening to you as you live out your life. And that's another aspect of mindfulness. Sati, uh, sometimes people see it in a very limited way. Of all the spiritual traditions that I'm familiar with, the Theravadan view of Vipassana, which is whether you know it or not, that's what you're learning when you come here, must get an award for being the plainest, least adorned teaching, if you'll pardon the expression, on God's earth. I mean, I don't have to pardon. It's okay. God, Dharma, it's the same to me. But sometimes the... um, the simplicity of the language, how unadorned a lot of it is, the, um, I don't know what to say. There can be quite a gap between uh, how unassuming the language is and the power of, and profundity of the experiences that come out of this simple-minded practice. So please don't be taken in by the fact that the language is very often, especially in the poor translations that we have, kind of wooden and stilted and all those laundry lists, the five this and the ten that and the twenty this and the eighteen that. Yet, what they're really saying, what it's really saying, it's not a teaching that's cold. Actually, what it's talking about is a kind of infinite respect for life. Because if you're learning to pay attention to absolutely everything that's happening to you, that which you love, that which you hate, that which is boring, Can you see how it's another way of paying respect to your life? Now, this is the other aspect of sati, of mindfulness, that it's not something uh, that's carried out with binoculars or a spyglass from a a distance. The, uh, The unbiased quality, the present tense, everything that's been mentioned so far is carried out in the process of living out our life. 
we learn how to be mindful in a participative way. Is there any other way? Or is you're being fully present to what is happening to you. But people often say, well, if you're being unbiased, then you're cold and distant. No, we're attempting to be fully, let's say, unbiased, objective, present, non-conceptual, in the midst of our life, as we live our life. Because it's, as you know, the practice is not simply sitting on the cushion. It has to do with what happens to us from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. Again, put in this very simple way, the Buddha talks about it over and over again, of mindfulness being carried out in sitting posture, standing posture, walking posture, and lying down posture. In other words, all the time. Okay, so that mindfulness is part of our living out our life. While we're living out our life, from moment to moment, it only happens in moments. It's possible we human beings have this unique ability to not only live our life, but to also know what we're doing as we do it. Now, knowing here is not thinking. It's a kind of sensitivity which is being called sati, or mindfulness. Okay, other aspects of sati, as we, as you can see, there's a fair amount of overlap, but there are subtle differences, is that sati has, doesn't have, or mindfulness, doesn't have as its frame of reference a self, or an I or a mind. In other words, it doesn't really belong to anyone. As soon as it does, that means it's gotten confounded. It means it's gotten mixed in with thinking, with some concept. All there really is, maybe some of you have experienced this already, is attention. The attention itself belongs to no one. Now, what can happen is a thought will arise which appropriates that attention and says, this is my mindfulness. My mindfulness is very good today. Now, from a conventional point of view of language, that's fine. We need to talk to one another. But if you look more closely from a, from a profound point of view, that's just a thought. The mindfulness belongs to me. It has LR on it, or whatever your initials are. All that we can really say as, you, as this develops is that there is a knowing of what's happening. And that knowing, of course, as it develops, more and more leaves everything behind. It burns its way through all the sorrow that makes up human life. That's, of course, the point. But you might say, I thought it's objective and now another quality, no goal. The goal of Buddhism, of Dharma practice, is definitely the end of suffering. That's what the Buddha talked about over and over again. And mindfulness is central in accomplishing that. But mindfulness doesn't get carried out by straining to try and get some result. It's actually a soft attentiveness which gets strengthened as you use it and doesn't if you don't use it. And that quality of attention becomes less and less true mindfulness if there's some goal alongside of it. 
That is, if you hear the essence of it, it's allowing things to be the way they are and to know them that way. When you, when you develop a goal, certain kinds of goals, uh, the mind is divided. It's looking for a result. It gets a little bit ahead of itself. So it's part of it's looking at something and typically another part is saying, well, I'm still in pain. I've been observing pain and these people say that it's helpful even with pain and how come it's still here? And so in watching that, that falls away. And then we come back to pure attention. Pure attention has no goal in it other than the full experiencing of the present moment. And we find that very hard to do because our education is such that probably most or all of us in this room have been, we have a very calculating mind. Our mind has been brought up to always be functioning in terms of in order to. That is, so that even attention, I'll pay attention if I can make some money out of it. Or perhaps there's a relationship will come out of it. Or a new job or something, for goodness sakes. There's got to be something that comes out of this. Whereas the mindfulness that I'm talking about, the power of it, is exactly in its non-utilitarian practice. And that's why I feel it's akin to a naturalist just learning about some species or an aesthetic motive. Where people, where you look just because it's beautiful. And so there's no goal other than the experiencing of what's happening in the present moment. And it is that which actually has a dynamic which, which takes the energy out of things. But if you try to do that, you then kill it. It's like trying to be happy or trying to get a joke. It doesn't work that way. Okay. So come what may seeing as we practice is not established overnight because we keep bumping into our preferences, what we would like to see and what we would rather not see. If we have problems in terms of ethical behavior, if there's lying going on in our life or stealing or sexual misconduct, it's difficult to look at that. If our mind is very scattered all over the place, it's very difficult for an adult who's carrying out, let's say, a responsible job to take a look and see just how scattered the mind is, to be able to really see that. If we're moving more into wisdom directly, it's not so easy to see that everything that arises passes away. It's not so easy to see that we suffer a lot because we have a body that is liable to suffering and a mind that is as well. And so forth. So that uh, the practice is little by little, gradually opening our heart becomes what we can allow in develops, is broadened. What are the, the what we can attend to? At the beginning, it's rather narrow. For the, for the practice to flower, for the practice to bear fruit, what has to happen is an opening to who? To ourselves. Because every time we shut down and we say, I don't want to attend to that, 
this is okay. Boredom's all right, but not fear. That means what we have declared at that moment is a limitation to what we're willing to learn about. We're saying, I don't want to learn anymore right now. I don't want to learn about how I'm afraid of this or that. Okay. Then that's all right. It's not, I'm not saying it's a crime. But what we've done at that moment is we've been unwilling to pay attention to something. And so we have to investigate it. It's not to punish ourselves. What we begin to see is, oh, I, I hate fear. I don't really, I'm terrified of being frightened. And I've never really dealt with it. And I don't want to start right now. Okay, what can we do? In our practice, one thing that we can do is knowingly we avoid the fear. In other words, it's not repression. But we know, we just, we know to ourselves that right now I'm not strong enough to look at fear. And this is where the samadhi practice comes in and is very, very helpful. We go to an object that is innocuous by and large, like the breath, and we calm and steady the mind. We nourish it. We gladden it. We make it stronger by just being with one object, in, breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out, millions of times perhaps. No perhaps, millions of times. And what tends to happen is that the mind becomes stronger, more confident, steadier, and the day comes where it's more able to take on fear, if that's the one for you, or it could be something else for someone else. And so, or we edge our way towards it. We reflect on fear. Let me tell you a story of... Uh, this is where yogi mind and ordinary mind differ dramatically. And if you're coming here, those of you who are new, we're definitely moving in the direction of trying to develop yogi mind. Some years ago, I attended a, a week-long, I don't know what to call it, uh, study group with Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti, who many of you have heard or read his books or heard his tapes. And the whole week was spent on fear. And we would have, we'd meet as a group, there were about ten of us, uh, for a couple of hours, two or three times a day. And we would just keep exploring fear. Uh, Krishnamurti would start out and then we would all get in on it and it would be a dialogue. And this went on for a whole week. And finally, at the end of the week, and we covered every afternoon, uh, everyone had to catch a plane going to, to back to where they came from. Uh, the week was over. We had about five minutes left. And suddenly Krishnamurti started ambling on and it sounded like... Uh, a non sequitur. We didn't know what he was talking about. Suddenly he started talking about how he was in Fifth Avenue a couple of days before and with some friends and they took him to a, uh, a, a, a jeweler and he was allowed to hold in his hand some very extraordinary gem, a diamond. And he described it and he was in front of us. He put his hands out just as I'm putting my hands out now. And he said, and I just focus my attention on the diamond and then he started to describe in detail that I'm not able to all the different intricacies of the structure and how the light came and he went on and we're just sitting what is this I thought this is about fear but okay we got sucked in it was a very beautiful description of it he's holding this diamond and talking about it and how he got more and more his attention became more riveted to it and it finally he went totally into the diamond and then went beyond the diamond into something else. 
that was even more precious. At which moment, suddenly, he, he took his hand and whisked the diamond away and he then took with his other hand, he put fear in there and he said, fear is that diamond. And you know, we were all like shaking up, shaking up, you know, either we didn't understand what he was talking about, but most of us knew exactly what he was talking about. Why would you want to use an image of the diamond, which by and large is something valuable and beautiful, to stand for fear, which is something that we hate? What he was trying to say is that the whole power of the practice is in this come what may seeing. If you can only look at fear, if you can only truly look at fear, the energy that's trapped inside of fear is extraordinary. And it's in the seeing that we liberate this energy, which then is us. We then have that energy. And it takes us to a place that's much deeper than fear. Much deeper than fear. And it's where we want to go. But it's as if fear is a guardian of some, some place that we want to get to. It's keeping us away because we refuse to take it on or really to get to know it. It's not to take it on. It's not a struggle. And other occasions, he's talked about allowing fear to flower. Fear to flower. We, flowers flower, you know, or young children flower, or, you know, all kinds of things we approve of flower, but why would we want fear to flower? This is where yogi mind is a little weird. When you're ready for it, the actually the states that most, of, most human beings condemn and avoid are very precious to the yogi because that's where, that's where freedom lies. Freedom is trapped inside of all these things that we don't want. And so, why do you think people are going off to caves and jungles and sitting alone and doing these things or sitting for months on end? Because when you're ready for it, you actually, it's an, it's an adventure, it's an exciting adventure, but you have to be ready for it. Moreover, you have to have seen the value of surrender. You have to have seen the value of surrendering to something simply because it's there, in this case of its fear. It's kind of more new age talk would be make friends with your own fear. It's okay to be afraid. I don't care if, if that helps you do it, the language is not important. And so, little by little, uh, part of the... the uh, the stock and trade of being a meditator is being interested in exploring the very things which are where we're not perfect, where we do have limitation. Why not? Let's take that one on. But remember, it's something that's done gradually and at your own pace. It's a gradual awakening. But we're strengthening ourselves in untold ways through developing uh, a living uh, a moral life, a life where we uh, do fewer and fewer things that bring down the roof on us and other people as well. Through calming and concentrating the mind, through developing generosity and kindness and compassion. And so many qualities that all converge and enable the mind to be able to look at whatever is there. Okay, now we move to come what may doing. At some point, all of us must get up from the cushion. Right? Everyone. Even Milarepa, the Buddha, everyone at some point has gotten up off the cushion. If no other reason, go to the bathroom, for goodness sakes. But life is not just sitting on the cushion. Now, 
come what may doing is the dynamic expressive aspect of our practice. If I had to put both of them together, what I've really been trying to say tonight, and which is what made it, it's coming back to me now, which is what made it interesting in the first place, (laughs) is there's a certain hardiness. You could call it a spiritual hardiness or a dharma hardiness that really we need to develop. Now, hardiness here doesn't mean uh, necessarily a common sense hardy. You have a stocky build with a lot of energy, uh, you know, a kind of peasant vitality. That's nice. And if that helps you to do some of these things, that's fine. But you can have a frail body. It has nothing to do with the body in, in that sense. The hardiness that I'm talking about is a willingness to enter into life. And it begins with awareness. It's open up to just what's there. What does it mean to be alive? Not to think about it, endlessly speculating and thinking about it and reading different authors' views of what it means to be alive. I mean, please do that too, if you like. But at a certain point, if the Buddha has solved his problems, that's great, but he hasn't solved mine. And the only way that's going to come about is I've got to get to know myself. So we're back, as we always come back, to self-knowledge. Very simple, very basic. And unescapably done by each one of us for ourselves and by ourselves with the encouragement and help of the rest of the Sangha, teachers, fellow meditators, whatever it is, cushions, whatever helps, buildings like this. And so, come what may doing is another way of showing our respect for life. Not only is everything worth paying attention to, but it's obvious that from moment to moment there are things that need to be done if we're a human being. And some of them are wonderful and we love to do them. That's easy. Come what may doing, it's a snap. But what about so many other aspects of life? Some of which are boring. Some of which are dirty some of which people like ourselves shouldn't have to do. There are other people and it's okay for them to do. What about if there's no praise for what we do, for this particular activity? In short, it's a respect for even the smallest kinds of things that go on in life. And by the come what may aspect, it has to do with overcoming, just as we have resistance to what it is we're willing to to see, what it is we're willing to pay attention to, we have all kinds of assumptions and limitations about what we can do, what we can take on, conclusions about ourselves as being weak and faulty, or not the kinds of people that do that. And Dharma life is very different, it is hardier. Now, you don't get to be hardier by just wishing. It comes about by, again, seeing the the ways in which we avoid, the ways in which we are very, very timid and avoid life. If you keep doing this practice, of course, you can't, you have to see some of these things. It becomes harder and harder to avoid that. Let me give you some examples of ways in which uh, what I'm talking about is, is dealt with in the traditional training. By the way, to me, this is common in all the great traditions. There are ample stories in Christianity and Judaism 
uh, about spiritual training having to do with letting go of all of these ego preferences about what we should and shouldn't do. I like one uh, little notion that comes from Hasidic Judaism, which is a notion that uh, God has entrusted a small portion of the universe to each one of us. Each one of us has a, a small portion of the world. It's been entrusted to us to care for it. So that everyone has something worthwhile to do. Maybe it's just a, now these examples may not hold for anyone in this room. Maybe it's just a corner candy store. Maybe it's a small family. Whatever it is, that seems to be what life is for you. Now, what are you doing with it? It has to do with having respect for, for your own life, for whatever it is that you encounter being your life. In some of the uh, monasteries, I, I think uh, in Japanese Zen, they're really good. Of course, the Japanese love to work, as we all know. So they would be good at this, wouldn't they? And they are. I haven't been in any monasteries that compare with the Japanese monasteries in terms of bringing the practice into work. Uh, one of the things that, that happens, for example, is that you rotate in any of the Zen, good Zen monasteries, and there are not so many of them, really. Uh, you have different jobs. And so you get used to one job where you're the nice guy or the nice lady or whatever, and another one where you're the one who has to scream in the meditation hall and tell everyone to wake up. And the, another one where you help cook for months on end, another one where you're just mopping floors, and another one where you... So you rotate through a wide variety of activities. And you learn what has to be learned from each one until finally you start to learn about letting go in the midst of action. So nothing... This is my job, and I, I, I only do kitchen work. I come from a family where, you know, my parents owned a restaurant. I'm very comfortable. Oh, yeah? Good? Okay. You have to go out into the rice fields. Or in Thailand, they have a system of kutis or meditation huts. And in the monasteries that I know of, if you leave, let's say you go away for a certain period of time, and the kutis are not all identical, just as... Some are, are nicer than others. Some have a nice breeze comes through or they're better constructed. Well, they're newer. You come back, it's too bad. You, have, you, get a, you can't say, well, that's my kuti. Well, where were you? I went, into, I went to Bangkok for two months. Well, in the meantime, someone else lives there. And so you learn how to, to go to just your next assigned whichever kuti is free. And it's a form of training. And... So you begin to learn how to, how to just do things, how to let go of preferences. Uh, Shibiyama Roshi, who was a, was a, a wonderful Japanese teacher, uh, talked about his own monk days. I'm going to give you a few examples because we don't have a lot of time left and I'm sure you'll understand what I'm saying and just apply it to your own life. We all, this one is very easy to practice. Not easy to do, but we can start. And Shibiyama Roshi talked about when he was a monk, uh, someone donated a, uh, a cottage, some lay people donated a cottage to the monastery. It was near the monastery. And so uh, Shibayama Roshi's teacher sent him to clean it up because it hadn't been used for quite a while. And when he got over there and opened it up, he saw that it was filthy and in total disarray. And he was repelled by it and he hesitated. And his teacher happened to be, came, was following right behind and happened to see him hesitate. Just he hesitated. And he grabbed him and just pushed him out of the way. And he said, all these years of practice and you still have preferences? And he, 
And he was an old man, apparently. And he got down on his hands and knees and just started scrubbing away, just cleaning it up. It has to do with, um, if you want to read something, there's a particular um, teaching that I've uh, worked with a lot. I've read it more times than I can remember and I've reflected on it more times than I can remember and I found the value in it just, it's like a bottomless there's so much value in these very in these contemplations. It's Dogen's. We have it in our library in the Zen section. Dogen's instructions to the Zen cook, and it's really about cooking your life. It has to do with. On one level, it's just about how to cook, how the cook should behave in the Zen monastery. On another level, it's about everything. And in there are instructions like, you know. It's easy if the emperor or some very important people come to the monastery, then you are very alert and very attentive and you are uh, definitely wholehearted and undivided in what you do because you're concerned about these famous people who are there. But what about if it's the same old boring monks that you're training with day in and day out and they drag their butts into the dining room and there they are again? Well, we don't care as much. We just throw anything together. Well, what about if you have wonderful ingredients? The lay people, if many of you have been at monasteries, you know that typically monasteries, what kind of food they have is very much dependent on what people donate. And so sometimes they're just beautiful, wonderful kinds of food, and other times it's just about nothing. And so then Dogen goes on, and what about if you're the cook and you have these wonderful ingredients, all kinds of, so you make a beautiful meal? Then, of course, it's easy to be very alert and really care about how you make that meal. But what about if all it is is wilted greens and leftovers with these same old scraggly monks coming in? <laughs> you know, you just throw it together and on and on. And so what he's saying is the kind of attention that he's asking for should be independent of whether they're famous people or good ingredients or poor ingredients or... The people who are there are just the same old people who, who you don't care what they think of you. You know, when our parents come, it's amazing how our houses get, our apartments become so spotless. Or I remember in my own case when there was a Tibetan Lama who was staying upstairs and he would come two days a week. It was wonderful. You should come up there those two days. And then as soon as he left, there was less motivation to, to clean it up. And then he would come back again and then suddenly it would be, it took me a while to get onto it. You know? <laughs> Okay, so that come what may doing has nothing to do with what the ego gets out of correct action. Now, correct action, of course, is not always so easy and we can't go into all of that. But one aspect of it is all that I'm stressing tonight and that's the undividedness and what the ancients called giving life to life. And one good example that the Chinese used a lot that is if you're while you're drinking a glass of water, you're thinking about some beautiful rice wine that you could be drinking, you've just killed life. In other words, you're not enjoying or fully giving respect to the water and you're not fully respectful. You don't have the rice wine. That's just, uh, rice wine. That's just in your mind. And so you really have killed them both. Now, you can see that some of this attitude has to do with enlivening a sense of respect which we in the modern world need desperately. 
respect for some of the things that we take so for granted. We're talking about ecology right now. It's an old thing. The problem with ecology begins in the mind. It's only if you have a certain attitude towards nature can you do certain things to nature. Okay, let's skip that one. It's a long one. But what, So what is being developed in this come what may doing is an attitude where you live with sensitivity and wholeheartedness and sometimes there's a lot at stake and sometimes it's just very small. It's not much at all. And it doesn't matter. And sometimes there are people who are monitoring your behavior and you care about it. And at other times, no one will ever know. And the Buddha talked in a very beautiful way about those monks who, when they saw something um, out of place in the monastery, would just fix it up and never mention that they did it. Just do it. Please do it here when you come here. If you see something is off and you know that it should be corrected, fix it. It's our place. It doesn't belong to me. I just live and work here, that's all. Seriously. So if you see a light that's on and it shouldn't be, turn it off. That's part of your practice. It not only saves electricity and is ecologically sound, but now you're suddenly doing, you're, you're awakening something in you that perhaps can spread to things that are more important than just that. The best training that I uh, receive in this, that is, come what may doing, uh, is something I reflect on often as well, uh, because when it happened, it was so absurd and yet it was so fruitful. Uh, some of you have heard this at least once, but I'll do my best. I hope I say the same, at least it's the same story when I repeat it. Uh, some years ago, um, I, was, I lived at a place called the Cambridge Zen Center. It's the present Cambridge Zen Center, for those of you who know it. And in those days, uh, the, t- the main teacher who founded it, Sansanim, uh, for the most part, lived there with us. And we would have these three-day retreats once a month. And my job was helping Sansanim lead the retreats, and when he wasn't there, leading them myself. And uh, this was around Christmas time. And a couple of days before the beginning of the three-day retreat, it was clear that no one had signed up for the three-day weekend. And I think it was Thursday and the retreats began. It was Thursday morning and the retreats began Thursday night. It would go Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so I assumed, uh, obviously no interest, I went to Sansanim and I said, Sansanim, everyone from the Zen Center had left. It was Christmas and most people had gone to visit their families whatever. And I was the only one remaining. And I said, no one from the Zen Center is here and no one has signed up for the retreat. So I guess we'll just cancel it, right? He said, cancel it? Why? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, I just told you, I mean, there's no one here. And uh, uh, who would we give the retreat to and for? He said, Retreat has nothing to do with how you got one person there, a million people there, nobody there. Will you give retreat? <laughs> In his broken English. Okay. So I had to take a double take. It didn't sound, it sort of sounded like he was putting me on, but he was very, very serious. So what actually happened was I led a retreat uh, where I was everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. 
Uh, and so there was a schedule, it was fixed. <laughs> so it began with 108 bows to the Buddha and uh, sitting and walking and uh, chanting in Korean and Chinese for half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening. I never liked it with a lot of people, let alone alone. Okay. Okay. And so there was this sitting and walking routine and uh, uh, the first part of it, it felt truly idiotic and I was I went from anger to feeling absurd. Then I realized that that was my interview. I was interviewing myself and the basic question was, what am I doing here? Why have I allowed myself to, to follow this madman? But then it evened out and I saw the beauty of it. Uh, and I just did the best retreat I could and there was no one watching me. No matter where I looked, there was just me sitting there, me walking, me chanting, whatever it was that I was doing. I did it for three days. The last two days were just wonderful. But more important than any particular sittings, and I had a calm sitting, I had a restless sitting, and all of that, you know, weather conditions. That's not the heart of the practice, because that keeps changing. Was that I freed myself from something, at least a little bit. And so the message that comes across is a kind of wholeheartedness, a sensitivity that has to do with our own self-respect. It's not what other people think of us. It's what we think of us, of ourselves. And more and more to learn how to give our fullest to our own life. So it's giving life to life. And that's what uh, Come What May Doing is about. Now, as you can imagine, we could there are endless examples of this and the problems in doing it. But I think for tonight, that's that's enough to give you a sense of both of those. The integration is simply the whole practice. In order to fully do come what may doing, there has to be come what may seeing. You, for example, have to see that you don't want to do what has to be done. It's not just to power your way through. You have to see that I don't like to put my hand in the toilet bowl and clean that rim and then take something and flush it around and put soap. I don't like to do that. And feeling the aversion, feeling the limitation. And then that melts away and you're just cleaning a toilet bowl. That's all. So mind and body and action are always coming together so that this uh, distinction between contemplation and action is really more academic. That is, the attitude of a a spiritual attitude uh, doesn't have any particular place. We have done that. We've created special places and they're necessary. But sometimes they... Uh, they actually create more problems because we tend to think that spiritual things go that you know that that Buddha lives in this place, but he doesn't live anywhere else. And obviously, that's not true. Okay, what what do you think about all this? Does any of it uh, help you understand your own practice? Things that your mind comes up against? Any questions or? Reflections about what was said, especially if they're personal and have to do with your own practice. Please. I just especially related to how you said uh, whenever we come up against a frustration or something that's bothering us, that's that's a limitation. That's where the limitation is. So, so, I mean, the, the idea, you know, is to like develop. Me and the way I see that, that saw that right, you know, to develop this mind right, 
which can go around and, and sort of like get beyond that frustration. Very difficult, you know, especially if you're very integrated. How do we do that? How does this practice help us do that? You're right. That's exactly it. For, before we move on, let's just can you can you give me a particular example of what you, know, you said it, uh, you could relate to it? Does something specific come up for you? Well, I mean, if, if for instance, I have um, problems with people that I live with, mm-hmm. you know, or problems, uh, you know, um, you know I, I mean, my own in my own life, you know, I, I immediately. Okay, to connect what was said to what you're saying is to allow that, let's say if it's irritability, I'm just, whatever, it doesn't really matter, to allow that irritability to be the way it is. See, it's not that we now have a new ideal that we try, I'm going to be a person who's not irritated. Uh, The spaciousness enables irritability to be there and for us to understand this is the way it is. This is the way a person feels when they're irritated. The starting point for it is to get in touch with irritability uh, in a way that allows it to be just what it is. It's no more than or no less. It's just what it is. It's irritability. Good, let's find out what that problem is. May I intervene? Diminish, wait, to diminish, <laughs> diminish anger, you know, to a certain So anger is no good. Pardon? Anger is no good. So it seems that it, seems that it should diminish through, through this watching. I mean, it doesn't seem like I should just be going around ang- and angry yes. and I always am all the time. You know? yes. That's where my problem you know? Okay. But what I'm trying to get at is that I think common sense would have that starting point. Or it's, what am I going to do to get rid of the anger? Now, the truth is, the best way for your anger or irritability or what have you to begin to fall away is for you to learn how to to begin to allow it to be there. Step number one, it's not for you to act it out. We're not saying that. Step number one is for for you to feel what it's like to be angry. See, come what may seeing has to do with, remember all some of the things that were mentioned. It's unbiased. So that's, can you get in touch and allow that anger to be just what it is? Now, most people uh, quit before that. They act out. 
because they don't like the feeling of, of what it's like to be angry. First of all, it's extremely unpleasant. Now, part of how anger starts to uh, lose its power is we begin to see that we're suffering when we're angry. See, but it's not a, an intellectual thing. You've got to really dig it out of your, the marrow of your own bones. At any rate, what's being said here, you don't have to agree with it. But the application of the practice, step number one, is to learn how to be with so many of these states that we really don't want to be with. I'm not saying be angry forever. I agree with you. The way to come through, to go beyond anger is through it in this, in this teaching. And for most of us, we, we want to say goodbye to these very unpleasant states but we don't want to say hello. And unfortunately, you have to say hello before you can say goodbye. And so it's the hello part that's difficult for all of us. So can you say hello to anger or irritability? Do you see what I'm getting at? Can you learn uh, to feel what that is when it's there? Anyway, try it. But that's, that's what I've been saying. That's what I've been talking about. It's learning how to uh, see the experience things as they are. That's the, st- the starting point. I'm not. It, it, you may act in one way or another. You may have to protect yourself. You may have to tell someone uh, exactly how you feel. But the starting point is, especially if it's in sitting, then you, there's no one else in it. You're sitting and you're feeling it. Is the starting point is to learn how to get comfortable with every conceivable state of consciousness that's possible. That's where the unbiased thing is. Because we have a lot of biases. We only want certain things to visit us. In this one, you have to open your heart so that whatever visits consciousness is welcome. That's why it's not so easy. Because we shut down. Oh, I don't mind this, but I don't want this. And again, the practice, the unfolding of the practice is more and more developing the capacity to do just what I'm saying. It's not like you do it overnight all at once. It's that you keep seeing how much you're intimidated and tyrannized by particular emotional states and that you don't deal with them as a result because we don't like to feel uncomfortable. And the practice is learning how to be with what most people don't want to be with. Now, I have to add to that. We don't have time to bring all the other factors. Let's just add one factor. Supposing there's strong samadhi. Those of you who are new, samadhi is a stability of mind, a concentration of mind. Let's say you're fearing, feeling irritable or angry. If there's not much samadhi in the mind and you attempt to do what was just suggested here, to, to open to it, probably at the beginning you'll be overrun by the anger because it's much stronger than the mindfulness doesn't have the strength of samadhi in back of it. And so for those of you who at times may wonder why you spend hours just following the breath or just doing the walking meditation, some of that, since it doesn't seem to be working on wisdom directly, Some of that is to prepare the mind to make it fit so that when it looks at a difficult state like irritability or anger, it can just experience anger. Not try to make it less, not try to make it more, but allow it as a natural phenomenon to fully register. Yes? Uh, A lot of that question is is the the paradoxical question about about wanting calmness. Mm Yes. We, we, we try to. That's what we want to get to. Yes. Yet, at the same time, you're saying if the goal is too strong, 
It depends. It, fine, let's say you just told me you want to be calm. Fine, that may bring you here, it may give you the, the energy, motivate you to practice. So I wouldn't want to weaken that. Uh, it's not so much, uh, that isn't the problem, but what do you actually do in a given moment? Now, in a given moment, uh, let's say there is uh, agitation. Real calm can come from fully experiencing what it's like to be agitated. In fact, I don't know if you can get to it any other way. A kind of calm that is really trustworthy. That is not caused by a kind of the, the mind, a mind game. But actually, and that's of course we're now doing the work of wisdom, is insight into fully being mindful of agitation and all kinds of other states. And of course, what the calm comes out of the understanding of the agitation. If there's resistance to being agitated, which is of course what we have, then you go to the resistance. You see how much you, you hate being agitated. And it's relaxing. It's sort of, there's a flow of mindfulness so that it becomes much more continuous. And the truth is that if you want to get calm, the best way to get it is to learn how to, to be with what's there. Whereas what I was getting at is if let's say you're agitated and then let's say half of your energy or a portion of your energy is on the agitation. And another part is, in the books they say that if you pay attention to agitation, some of the energy falls away and then you become, so you're watching it and also you're looking for results. That's what, that's what I meant. It's like you know, pulling a plant up to see if it's growing, pulling it out of the ground. <laughs> you know. So that what really helps the, con- can you be 100% agitation mind? And that's what we're learning. It turns out it's not a problem if you can be totally mindful of agitation. First of all, you can't be totally attentive and also be egotistical about it. If you're totally attentive, then I and mine, the momentum of I and mine, naturally is brushed away. You can't do both at the same time. It's sometimes one of the the ways in which the practice gets turned around comes out of... uh, Hopelessness. You kind of throw up your hands and say, my God, I'm trying to be uh, nonviolent and I'm trying to be calm and I'm trying to be compassionate. And then you keep seeing how you're violent and how you're uh, agitated and so forth. At a certain point, you just say, it's too much, all these things that are pouring out of the mind. And in that giving up can be a moment of just fully experience. Okay, so there's violence in your heart right now. So what of it? What's wrong with that? But again, it's, what, it's not just a, uh, condoning it, it's can there be sensitivity to it? Feeling it as, this is what it feels like to be angry. This is what human beings feel like when they're really angry or, or have violence in their heart. And this is what this particular human being feels right now. Please. The question, if I want to make sure I understand it, is what's what's his job up there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And well, 
Yes. Yes. Um, relatively speaking, as many of you know, uh, most spiritual di- traditions have many more forms. Uh, lots of chanting, uh, lots of more ceremony. There's a bare minimum of it here. There is chanting. Um, very often on retreats, it may be dropped. And what you're left with is just silence. Maybe a bit of bowing, not much. Um, in some, uh, But in most monasteries, there is a Buddha and you'll see people bowing to the Buddha. I did when I came in here. When I bowed, I bowed to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Now, when I bow to that figure, or if any of you should like to bow, um, I, I don't think that there's a little person inside of there. You know, like there's someone inside there, hiding inside of there. I don't think that if I ask him to, he's going to send me, give me a bicycle. You know, or, or I'm, I'm going to have... Uh, I know that that has been fashioned by someone. It's made out of whatever it's made out of. Uh, the bowing um, uh, or that, that devotional quality I'm basically doing it for me essentially what I'm doing is I'm exercising uh, the quality of appreciation and gratitude uh, now that's why if you do it that's why we don't require it here I have been when I, the first Buddhist uh, center that I participated in it was, everything was required and so we were bowing and doing all kinds of things. And I just felt like a trained seal or a monkey because I didn't know what I was bowing for and I just did it. It was sort of paying my dues so that I could get uh, what I really wanted, which is meditation. Um, when I bow now, I love to bow. I didn't always. For years, I didn't. I sort of, you know, that was just kind of for ignorant people and superstitious people. Um, it changed when the gratitude for the teachings of the Buddha uh, became not just some kind of romantic or sentimental thing, but uh, the practice itself yielded enough fruit for me to really be appreciative that this training has been kept alive for so long and that there are actually teachers who have kept it alive and some of them have handed it on to me. And so when I do that, it's, in a sense, it's opening my own heart, that's all. After all, the Buddha doesn't need me to bow. He could care less. This figure or anywhere else. So much of it is uh, to develop uh, respect. Also, when you see somebody bow to the Buddha, it's hard to know at what level they're bowing. If you go to Asia, many of the people who are bowing, it's on the level of of superstition, of popular religion, where they feel if they're bowing to to the Buddha that something good will happen to them. It's coming from outer space or someplace. You know, the Buddha will do something of that sort. But uh, there are also those who understand that the Buddha is still alive. But Buddha nature, that is. But it's in our own heart. So that you're really bowing to the highest potential that you have. And you're using a form. It's a conventional form to help mobilize that. If you get to the point where you don't need it, great. But for many of us, it adds a um, a certain quality to the practice. And if a lot of people are doing it and they all are doing it not just as monkeys, they're doing it because they know why they're doing it, it can really add uh, a dimension to the practice that's quite moving and beautiful. My own opinion is that it's too new in America uh, for for us to expect that. And that's why I'm just letting everyone unfold at their own pace. Um, um, Is that that enough or is it... 
Okay, clearly there was no Buddha image at the time of the Buddha. Right? There was just the Buddha. And in all religions, the imagery, sacred art and so forth, starts to happen after many years, when the fa- when Jesus is gone, when the Buddha is gone, something is needed to mobilize a certain kind of, uh, of feeling, which is part of the practice. When I said that Vipassana is very plain, what I mean is we don't use a whole lot of that, although there's, even there there's some variation. In some monasteries they'll chant twice a day, in others not at all, or they'll chant twice a day except when there are retreats and it's totally silent. Usually there will be some bowing. I went to, uh, maybe we'll end with this one. Uh, You may like this. I don't know what was in back of your question, but at one point uh, in Korea, the same mischievous teacher who made me lead a retreat with no one there, um, I was there. You're right. (laughs) See, I still haven't fully learned the lesson. So uh, he told us that we were going to see one of the most beautiful Buddhas in all of Korea. And there were three of us and we couldn't wait. And so there was a long train ride and then we came to this uh, mountain uh, and it was a pouring rain and we made our way up the mountain and a few of us kept falling down in the mud and we were soaked and miserable. But he kept us going by saying this was a, a really beautiful Buddha. It was one of the most ancient and beautiful ones in Korea. Finally, after about a half a day of misery, we got to the top and there was this monastery. We walked inside and there was this very large, clean space. Many of you will like this. And there was nothing in it at all, except the sign in Korean. And then we said, well, what does that mean? And what it said was, for those of you who, who can't see the Buddha in this room, please go back downhill and practice a little harder. <laughs> And that's really true. But then if you get attached to that, in other words, any time there's a Buddha, oh, that's just superstition. Those people are dopey and stupid. I believe in the true thing. You know, it's another kind of attachment. You know, it's a convention. And the meaning is what we give to it. And it helps me, so I bow to the Buddha. I love the Buddha. I love to bow to him. Um, But if you don't want to, that's okay. Okay. Can we have a moment's silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.